welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Sunday the 7th of November 2010, entitled Moses' Faith, and the Bible reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. Here's Pastor Tony Bickley. For those who've come who weren't here this morning, this morning or this afternoon it was really, he said I was preaching this morning, but I should have known better. Um, not, not that Larry is a... Uh, Long. <laughs> oh, yes, he is, isn't he? Yeah, that's right, he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said I was preaching at 11. It was actually two minutes to 12 when I preached. Um, but thank you for coming, and uh, thank you for inviting me. It's been really nice to meet some old friends. Now, some of you I don't know. In fact, a lot of you I don't know. And I probably haven't spoken to you because I don't know who you are. Who you are. Um, but please say hello before I go um, and, and tell me who you are. And those who I know from old. It's just really good to see you all again. Really nice to see you all. It's uh, been 15 years. I think it's 15 years. I don't think I've been to the church since I left, am I? Have I been, been to a meeting? I know Liz came to a, a ladies' meeting, didn't you? But I don't think I've been to a Sunday service since I left, so it's good to be back. And uh, thank you for ha- inviting me. Well, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Once again, we ask that you would help us as we seek to worship you. Help us as we seek to worship you through your word. We pray that you would draw near, that you would pour forth your spirit upon this place, upon each and every one of us, that we might know an overflowing, an overwhelming presence of God. And Lord, that you would work the works of salvation and the work of sanctification. We might just be drawn nearer to you and uh, and, uh, conformed a little more to the image of Jesus. We do commit ourselves to you. Pray for your grace and mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we were looking at Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the life of, uh, of, of um, Abraham, uh, as it's, or a part of Abraham's life as it's revealed in there. We're still in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 23, down to verse 29. Uh, we're going to look at some aspects of the life of Moses. Uh, Moses is an amazing man, uh, if you, uh, well, so was Abraham a, uh, we could say that about a number of people, but you should read through the life of Moses. He's a remarkable, remarkable man. Um, but again, as we said about Abraham, he is just a man. And the difference between him being uh, just a man and a, a mighty man of God is God, and we'll see that. But we're going to read verse 23 down to verse 29. Uh, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child Uh, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment if you remember the king commanded all the children uh, male children to be cast into the river uh, at birth by the um, the midwives Uh, uh, or they contrived not to do it Um, and that's how Moses survived the three months and then later he survived into adulthood uh, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come of to year, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured a seeing him who was invisible." Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith 
they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians assayed to do, assaying to do were drowned. Amen. On Moses and faith, a number of things said about Moses. Um, said that God spoke to him as friend to friend and face to face. One to one relationship with God. That's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? But I think that uh, if we, if we, as we look at this, we'll see that we too have a really intimate relationship uh, with God, uh, perhaps more so than we imagine uh, it to be. And this morning we looked at the life of Abraham, saw his obedience that he went and that he went with purpose, he went with blessing, and he went with a vision for eternity. Um, this afternoon we're going to take a, a look at the life of, uh, of Moses. We're going again to try and do so in a way that relates to us. I think the scriptures, if they, if they don't relate to the Christian, um, they might be very well expounded in a, in a general sense or a theoretical sense. But if they don't relate to the Christian, you wonder at their, uh, their benefit in some ways. So we're going to look at this very much in how it relates to us. And we're going to do so by taking this flying visit to the life of Moses, which is a very special life, a life described by God as being the meekest, probably outside of Jesus. Um, it's uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, tells us of the meekness of, uh, of Moses. He was a very gentle and faithful uh, and uh, and solid man, he, his faith within God, he trusted God. He was immovable in the purposes of God. Uh, in this chapter, chapter 11, in this part of Hebrews, we're told of the faith of Moses and we're given again, as with Abraham, a number of aspects for us to think about and they're certainly thought-provoking. And the first thing we see is the manner of his birth. Um, leading on then to his privileged life, and all such things. It's there in verse 23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child uh, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Moses was a healthy and solid and well-formed child. There was nothing wrong with him. He wasn't uh, in any way defective. In every part of his life, his physical form, he was, it was things as they should be. And yet uh, the king or the pharaoh sought to destroy him. But God had other plans for Moses. The same as he has other plans for every one of you who has come to Christ. It used to be a, a, a term that was popular in the church. I'm sure Larry still uses it, but it's not really popular in the church now, which was that God has a plan for your life. Uh, and every single Christian could be confident that God had a plan for their life. Well, it's not really said these days in a lot of areas. But it's true. God has a plan for every life. And we see it in the life of Moses. We see that there is a plan, a purpose that God has for Moses. He's born. He's uh, kept alive for three months, hidden in his uh, uh, parents' house. And then after the three months... Things get a little difficult and they have to make other arrangements. And so I'm sure you all know the story of Moses and the, uh, the reed basket. Uh, his mother and his sister, they make a reed basket. They take him down to the river 
They push him into the river, and uh, the sister stops and watches what's happening. And then Pharaoh's daughter comes, and bear in mind the river would be seen uh, as a provision of the gods uh, in Egypt. When the child comes, Pharaoh's daughter sees him, and she takes him to herself. Moses' sister sees that and goes to Pharaoh's daughter and says, would you like a Hebrew woman to care for Moses? And, of course, his mother then gets to bring him up uh, in the way of, uh, of, uh, of, the, uh, of the Jews whilst he's kept safe in the royal household. That's called providence. I want to tell you a story. It's not really to do with this. Uh, a few people have told it. Uh, a story about providence, how it works. Um, it's, a, it's something that happened to me recently. I, I had a, a, back, a back operation, and, and it was very much uh, an emergency operation. I, I was due to go on holiday um, on the 11th of September this year. Um, for reasons uh, beyond my control, I had to stay till the Sunday because the preacher that I had uh, was unable to be there. Um, so I was going to go on the Sunday night. And then I had to take a funeral on the Tuesday, so it was put off till the Tuesday. Uh, during this time, I'm having some problems with my back. And I'm thinking, this is not very good. This is it's not working out. I might say, this is not working out for my good. Um, I've got a back problem. Uh, I've got to delay my holiday for not just till Sunday night, but till Tuesday afternoon. And I was feeling a little bit disconcerted by it. And then on the Monday, I've got nothing to do because my family had gone on holiday and I'm sitting at home on my own. I thought, well, I'll just get some painkillers for the back. So I rang up the doctors after uh, various reasons why they couldn't just give me a prescription. I eventually made an appointment, went down to the doctors, finished up in the A&E, finished up in hospital, and by 12 o'clock that night, I'd had an operation on my back, which saved me from being paralysed. I would have been paralysed. Now, that's Providence. Circumstances which don't seem to have any benefit in themselves work together for the good of the Christian. One of the things that came to my mind is that God not only loved me as a Christian, not only loved me as a part of the church or a part of his family, he loved me as an individual in that he moved heaven and earth to bring about all the appropriate circumstances that would need to be brought about for me to be on that operating table at that time. That's what he does. That's providence. And what we see in the life of Moses, the early life of Moses, is providence. It's not good that Pharaoh wants to kill Moses. It's not good that his mother has to push him into a river in a basket. It's not good that uh, Pharaoh's daughter decides to adopt him. In themselves, they're not good. But when you put them all together... What happens? He finishes up safe and he finishes up cared for by his own mother and brought up with a knowledge of God. Providentially, he would become a member of the royal household, soon to be encapsulated or cocooned in every worldly comfort. And no doubt it was pleasurable for him because we read that he, it was the pleasures of a season uh, in verse 20, 20, uh, 25. He's instructed in all the worldly ways and all the privileges of the court of Egypt. And many would ask, wouldn't they, why did he ever leave Egypt? 
Isn't that one of the great problems with people when they hear the gospel? They're worried about what they're going to lose. It's the bird in the hand that they want rather than the two in the bush. They're worried about what they're going to lose. They're they're thinking, why should I give this up? This is safe. I know what this is. Life in Egypt was comfortable. It was safe, holding many prospects for him. Some believe that he would have become the next pharaoh. I don't know why they believe that because I can't find any evidence of it, but some believe that is the place he was. Others say he was the leader of Pharaoh's army, the general of Egypt. But he was in a good position, wasn't he? One that we might envy in some ways. Life in Egypt was comfortable, it was safe, held many prospects. So why did he leave? Well, I think we need to see the whole thing as a kind of salvation experience. A parallel experience that depicts every aspect of our own life. Now, you might say perhaps our lives are not so dramatic, but in themselves, they are in their own way, aren't they? We too stand between life and death. We too stand between the world and the world of God. But if, even if they're not so dramatic, they certainly contain the same elements. It's driven by the same God for many of the same reasons. And despite his privilege... Moses was locked into a world of sin. And we too are locked in the prison of sin. In many ways, helpless to free ourselves. Uh, Egypt is often uh, representative of the world and of sin and so on. And in almost every way, it feels comfortable and a good place to be. Uh, I remember I used to give my testimony when I first got saved. I got saved from a very disreputable background and uh, I'd always say how terrible it was. And, uh, and then one day it struck me that actually while I was doing it, it didn't seem terrible. And sin is pleasurable for a season. We need to bear that in mind when we preach the gospel that we're not talking to people always who hate what they're doing. It might be wrong what they're doing. It might be wicked what they're doing, but they don't always hate it. In fact, they love it because sin can be pleasurable. And there's Moses in the midst of pleasure. In almost every way, it feels comfortable and a good place to be for him. And then he's saved. How can that be? Well, something happened, didn't it? Something happened to remind him of his inheritance, to remind him of his God. He's walking down uh, through the, the building, uh, maybe the pyramids, pyramids are being built, who can really know that? Uh, he's walking down and uh, he sees um, two Hebrews fighting. And uh, Sorry, he sees a Hebrew and uh, uh, um, an Egyptian. The Egyptian is treating the Hebrew very badly. And so he steps in and he kills the Egyptian. Not a good thing for a Christian to do, by any means. Next uh, while, he, he meets two he, uh, Hebrews fighting and they remind him of this event and so he has to run. See, God's ways of dealing with things are, are not always our ways, are they? Uh, I finished up in Brighton um, through a very convoluted series of, uh, of problems that faced me, and yet, in God's providence, I'm glad I'm there. I think that uh, it's where God would have me. 
Moses is saved. Why did Moses make the choice he did? He left comfort, he left safety for a wilderness and banishment. And I think the answer begins with the nature of the circumstances of his birth. When we talk about circumstances as Christians, we do really refer to God's providences. He governs our circumstances. We're not automatons, but he, uh, uh, there's a verse, isn't there? It talks about uh, trusting the Lord with all your heart. Uh, do not lead unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. I once heard a, a man preach, and he said, it's just like you're walking down the road, and you can't quite see around the bend, and just around the bend, God is picking up the path and moving it. You're walking down the road. You're following the route. The answer begins with the nature, the circumstances of earth. When we talk about these things, it's providence. Through circumstance, Israel became strong in the land of Egypt. God prospered them in numbers. Through circumstance, there was a new Pharaoh. Pharaoh was concerned about the multitude of the Hebrews. You look at Exodus chapter 1. If you turn there, we'll, we'll read uh, some verses from it in a moment. But Pharaoh looks around and he's panicked. Goshen was inundated with the possibility of enemies. We look around our nation, don't we, and we see a vast amount of, uh, of migrants from other religions. And we see that, that these things are taking over. Well, that's what Pharaoh saw. Now, it's true to say that his was a false religion and the religion that he saw was, was true, but that's what he saw. A great multitude of people growing in the land. And he thought, there's an army growing in the midst that in certain circumstances could cause us grave problems, possibly insurrection. We need to avert it. The safety of the empire was predominant so if human felt necessity, things needed changing. And we see it in Exodus 1 verse 8. We read, Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of, uh, of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there, fall, when there falleth out of any war, they join also unto our enemies. So he's worried. And we can conclude from this same chapter, uh, almost 400 years uh, after this event, uh, they became a slave nation, uh, or they lived in slavery, verse 13 and 14. The Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and in brick and in all manner of service in the field, all their service wherein they made them serve was with rigour. Things changed dramatically for them. And then their captures, it was bitter hatred and fear of their presence. The king of Egypt spake, verse 15, to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other Puah. And he said, when ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stool, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him, but if it be a daughter, then she shall live. This is a terrible background that Moses is born into. It's the providence of God that 
delivers him from this. Their captures and torturers wanted to break them. As a nation, the people of God, the people whom God had covenanted with, they wanted to break them, to put them under domination and subjection. And we might think that's far away from us. But isn't that what Satan's plan is for us? To dominate us, to put us under subjection. Isn't often, isn't it the reason that we don't do anything? Because we're forced into that uh, defensive position. We come to prayer, we find it hard to pray because there's this satanic uh, offense against us. And does the word say, push on, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Interestingly enough, at the time of Israel's captivity, and I know that some of you might not agree with this, some of you might not have noticed it, but I can't find any indication of prayer actually going up to seek help. I'll show you what I mean by that in a minute. From every human perspective, the plan of Satan was working. And what we see in chapter 2, verse 23 to 25 of Exodus is this. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed. And so they called upon God. They sighed by reason of their bondage. And they cried. But we're not told they cried out to God. They were downtrodden, beaten down. They cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of their bondage. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered. What did he remember? He remembered his covenant. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob and God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect upon them. Faith can never be totally eradicated because it doesn't rest wholly in man. It rests on man. Why did God step in? Because he made a covenant with the people of Israel. Why does God step in and help us? Because we have a covenant. A covenant with him in the blood of Christ. Faith comes from God. Uh, Cecil mentioned it earlier as his testimony. It has divine origins. Uh, Ephesians 2 verse 8. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Its focus is outside of our situation. It's on God. And so it can overcome our or any situation. And we see that the knowledge of faith still exists even in, uh, in the midst of this downtrodden nation. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 1, the midwives feared God. Thankfully, the midwives feared God. We see also that one reason for God's intervention, the covenant promise. And this is important. Surely this is what we need today. I think it was, Cecil again was saying about uh, the number of people saved in the tent crusades and 
he pointed out that God hasn't changed, that God can do it today. And isn't that what we need? God remembered his covenant. God acknowledged them. In the ebbing tide of Christian faith, we need God to remember us. We need him to hear our groanings and acknowledge them. And of course that assumes that we've come to that point of groaning, that we've come to an end of ourselves. Such danger is not always acknowledged or understood. We have that account in uh, Revelation 3 uh, and verse 17 in the letters uh, in Revelation to the churches. Uh, And verse 17 we read this. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Isn't that again much of what we see today? We live in a very prosperous part of the world. I think it works out something like 95% of the world is poorer than we are. We feel ourselves rich and comfortable. We have food in our cupboards, heat in in our boilers. We have clothes on our back, beds that we can sleep in. Because thou sayest I'm rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. We don't realize our need, our need of God. To get there, we need to feel the pain of our need. You feel the pain of a lost generation, of a world outside these doors that's dying from sin. Does that matter to you? If you're not a Christian, I don't know, I don't know some of you, if you're not a Christian, does it matter to you that you are dying of sin? Or do you think that, well, I'll be okay. I remember before I was a Christian, I thought, uh, all my good deeds will be put on this hand and all my bad deeds on this hand, and where the balance falls, that's what will happen to me in eternity. And I thought, well, I'm not that bad a person. I'll be all right. I was a thief, a liar. Drug dealer, hypocrite, a God hater. It was everything that would stop me getting to heaven and nothing that would get me to heaven until God stepped in. To get there, we need to feel the pain of need. To move on, we need Him to acknowledge us and our need. And we need Him to remember us. Why? Because of Jesus. Any other reason is not enough. It falls short of need and of answer. Sin is an absence of uh, Holy Spirit power, uh, and the absence of the Holy Spirit power is the reason for our plight. Sin and a lack of God's power within us. I say our plight. Things may be different here than in Brighton. The church is vital and prosperous in all things relating to God not the case where I come from. Sometimes I hear people saying, the church is in revival. And I look around and, and, and I just wonder what are they talking about. We are where we are. Oh, maybe we could say because of past failures. They may not even be ours. Like here, they may have been inherited. 
400 years of slavery. It wasn't the generation who were being enslaved at that time who put them there. But by whatever, we have not been the people we ought to be. In a sense, we have gone too far away to be the people we ought to be. Born into decline and accepting it as normal. Born into a worldly church and thinking that it's all right. Lowering the bar of acceptable Christianity. Pledging the issue regarding grace and obedience. At Brighton each month we have a revival prayer meeting. We invite other churches. As you would. How many do you think turn up? This is the extent of, of the care and the, of, of the need, it seems to me. How many do you think turn up? Well, not even the whole of our own church turn up. And as far as others are concerned, the answer is none. And I wonder if I would turn up if it was held somewhere else. And instead of prayer, we try systems, programs, and men. Seeing the answer to our problem in the hands of men and the hands of women, not really relying on God for everything we have, everything we need. We're toiling in the brick fields of Satan's kingdom, seeking to build our home there, instead of toiling in the joy of Jesus, looking unto Jesus. Do you find that? that? Christianity is hard work because you're always looking at the problem you're always looking at the failure instead of looking to Jesus. Say in Hebrews, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him, lest you become faint and weary in your heart. If you're faint and weary in your heart, could it be that you're not considering Jesus? You're not looking unto him. He's wonderful, isn't he? By God's grace, the UK perceived uh, uh, the UK perceived our threat in the 16th century. Through the 17th and 18th and early 19th century, it continued to arrive. God raised up men. Uh, he brought about a reformation. He brought about a Methodist revival. Heard about the Welsh revival at the turn of, uh, of the last century. There was one in the middle of the 19th century, affected parts of England. Experienced a series of revivals that led from Reformation, interspersed with persecution and martyrdom. Truth returned to this country as the word of God was liberated in the 16th century through people like uh, William Tyndale, Wesley, Whitfield, Spurgeon. We could name them all. And so Satan patiently set about his counteraction. And since then, since 1904, decline. I know you can point to high spots, but generally, decline. Next to nothing, taken as a whole. The standard was lessened, the scripture importance diminished, the Bible became perceived as less than the word of God in the downgrade of the middle of the 19th century. Holiness was called, uh, was changed, it was and started to become, be called, begin to be called fanaticism. Holiness became a declining presence in the Christian life. 
One time the fruit of salvation was holiness. And then the way of salvation became holiness. And then simply to assent to an idea of holiness and to live in grace was enough. Not even of works before ordained. Not even of that greatest of works, sanctification by the Holy Spirit. And so the real presence of God has been diminished, just as it is here in Egypt. The presence of God is diminished in fighting with the world and with each other, increased just as it was here in Egypt. A godly remnant blessed, but they remained in trials. The masses found no real pleasure in God, and so they fought and they complained and they just existed. I don't know about you, I'm fed up of just existing. Fed up of just existing as a Christian. You can imagine it, can't you? They probably invented fatalistic religious excuses. Oh, let's be patient. When it's God's time, it'll all change. People say that. Especially where I come from. Big, big uh, um, hyper-Calvinist population down there. When it's God, God's time, it'll all change. We, can, we can't do anything without God. Well, that's true. But when they say that, what they mean is that we won't do anything. Jesus said, didn't he? He said, without me, you can do nothing. Which is perfectly true. But let me ask you this. If you're a Christian, are you without Jesus? Because Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Many have found substitutes for the true presence of God. They work themselves up into frenzy, call it God's spirit. In short, Egypt was just as depressing as Brighton, as maybe Ward Enders, perhaps even more so. And so men toiled, they moaned, they complained, they were bitterly broken, and they were without God, without his presence. And it was the world in the church, not the church in the world. If you read through the story, you would see as they led uh, away the, uh, the captivity into the wilderness and uh, into the times before the wilderness, the complaining, the longing for uh, the smells and the tastes of the world. But you know, this might sound depressing, but we shouldn't be disheartened because God is always faithful to his promises. And like them, we live under promises. Isn't that wonderful that God has promised things to us? But we don't deserve it. Not because we're somehow smarter or cleverer than the average uh, person. Because God is gracious. Like them, we live under promises. Like them, we have a covenant. And it's a better covenant. And if we come to him in Jesus we can be certain and guaranteed that he will acknowledge us. And he will remember us because of Jesus. And he'll acknowledge us in him. And the result of such remembrance by God is startling. Firstly, he will supply a way out. As the, Egypt, as the Hebrews found, it wasn't a quick way out. But he supplied a way out, nor will it be an obvious way out. You look at verse 23 and 20 to 24. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. Who'd have thought that this babe uh, would have been the uh, deliverer 
uh, under God of the nation. They hid him because they were trying to keep him alive as best they could. They were not afraid of the king's commandment. By faith, Moses, when he was come of years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, having lived in the palace in safety. Choosing rather, you listen to this, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Well, pleasures of sin for a season. Who's enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season? Who thinks that sin is good, pleasurable and fun? We looked this morning at Isaiah 43 and we saw that uh, for the Christian, God is in the trial. But when we read the word affliction, we could read almost the presence of God. As you pass through the fire, as you pass through the flood, as you pass through the water, choosing rather to suffer the presence of God in affliction with the people of God, what would you rather have? will certainly be a seemingly impossible way that he'll use to deliver. And it will defy the power and the authority of men, of Satan, and of the world. You look at our example here. Moses is born when all male children were killed. The Hebrew midwives still had a solid, sound faith. And in God's providence, Moses remained being raised a Jew, even remaining being raised by his own mother. And despite all of his advantages, he still identifies with God's people. And so as a prince in Egypt, the inevitable one day happened. He's forced to decide upon which side he will stand. We could say, choose you this day, whom you will serve. He's forced to that point. And it's here that we see him. Refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing the affliction of God's people. And the prize he looks to is twofold. Because you might say, well, is that worth it? What's he going to gain? Well, firstly, it is Jesus our Lord. Moses saw Jesus uh, through the Passover, we assume, and in the blood sin offering. He saw sacrifice, substitution. It says in verse 25 to 28, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, richer, uh, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the, of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured us seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So what was his prize? Well, he looked unto Jesus. And secondly, he saw salvation. He saw the deliverance of God, by God, from Egypt to a promised end. We saw Abraham earlier on look to a promised end. And he came to understand that nothing and no one could ever stop it happening. Verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians aside to do, were drowned. The question for us is this, do we have the same faith as Moses? You think about that for a moment. Do you have the same faith as Moses? Well, let me put it a different way. 
Has God given you a substandard version of it? Or is it the same faith that God gave Moses? Does he have several different versions of faith? Is our faith less potent than that of Moses? Or is our God somehow less powerful today than he was then? It's an interesting question, don't you think? Because although we may not verbalize things in this way, we certainly live as though these things are true. We whinge about the godless situation around us, complain about the lack of people in church. And if we're honest, often we doubt that it will ever be any different. How fickle is even the heart of faith? It too rests often in pleasure and feelings more than in faith in God's power. It's happy with the thought of success and of relief. But at what cost? I think the answer is that the cost we're prepared to pay to see the church grow often is at best little. And often, no cost. I mentioned this morning, your pastor has an open air on Saturday. Who's going to be there? I don't want you to put your hands up. What is more important than winning souls? What is more important than serving God, than obeying his great commission to you? The change will come to Israel, the making of a nation. But someone had to do the work. And these things come at great cost. They would travel through an empty wilderness, relying upon God to feed them from heaven. And believe me, they complained most of the way. Rely upon God for his love, his mercy, his grace, to provide them with water, to stand at the foot of the mountain of God's law, to falter and fail and fall into a 40-year trek around the wilderness, to die in unbelief and to make way for a generation of faith. Do you believe that God can turn this nation around? Do you believe that he will? Do you believe that he can? And that he could use you? Is he any different now to when he used Moses? Some people believe in two gods, don't they? They believe in the angry, judgmental God of the Old Testament and the fluffy, lovey-dovey God of the New Testament. Well, we don't, we don't hold with that. He's the unchanging God. You look over uh, just a, a, a few pages. This is a New Testament uh, statement about God. Wherefore, uh, verse 28 of chapter 12, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God. How? Acceptably. We like that. With reverence. We like that. With godly fear. Why should we do that? For our God is a consuming fire. He's the same God. He's the God who consumed the enemies of, uh, of Israel. He's the God who upholds, the God who delivers. He's no different now. The God who formed a people 
out of one man. The God who sent his son. The God who built his church. And he's building it. This is the God we read about in the Bible. But in our daily lives, what God do we believe in there? The God who cannot help us in our trials? The God who cannot bring comfort in our distress, who cannot deliver us from our cravings and addictions. The God who, having saved us, cuts us free to be buffeted, to be a mere victim of circumstance. That's not our God. Our God is strong. He's strong now. And he's always with us. You listen to these verses in Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He's mighty now. He's mighty in the midst of us now. He will save and he will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. I will gather them that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of thee, to whom the reproach of it was a burden. God is mighty. He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Moses. When Moses was uh, helpless, God protected him. When he was prosperous, God kept him focused. When he was given the choice, God made him wise. When he chose God's way, not the world's way. Do you imagine that there was ever a better choice for Moses to make than the one in verse 25 and 26? Do you think there's something better he could have chosen? Do we imagine that there was ever a better choice? I think sometimes that we live as though there is. But Moses, when he measured his life, he saw eternity over time. He saw Jesus as a better king than Satan. He saw God as a better master than to serve sin. And do we see the same? Moses was emboldened by his faith in God. He was impassioned by his love for God. He trusted God and believed on him for righteousness. He saw his own sin and the need of offering and sacrifice and substitution. And when things got tough, he cried out even in his confusion. Let me just read his life. Often we think we have to understand everything, don't we? And we don't. We simply need to trust God. And he will deliver. It's what he does for those he loves. As we cry out in our anguish, he delivers. We can question in prayer, ask whys and wherefores. Why is this happening, Lord? There's nothing, you can do that. Not wrong to ask the question. But ultimately, we rest in God in his wise decrees and actions. Moses was frail. And so why did you say, well, he fell into terrible sin before he left Egypt. He murdered a man. But God was strong. 
Our weaknesses are perfected in his strength. And our weaknesses show the glory of his being. Because any and all success then becomes his. Our disappointment is when we try to take it to ourselves. Because God will just step away. He'll just step away. Because he won't share his glory with any man. But if we work for him, acknowledging him for his glory and his glory alone, then who knows what he will do. Our weakness shows the glory of his being because any and all success becomes his and it's won by him and owned by him. And this is the God we serve. This is the Lord who will do for us. It is he who is mighty and it is he who is in our midst. Do you esteem the reproach of Christ more than anything else that you have in this world? Or do you? Would you take reproach? of a privilege, of a prophet? Would you take Christ over anything that the world has to offer? Moses did. Moses proved his faith with his choices. And there might be some here who think they might have faith. But what about your choices? Choices are you making? Time for the church, not this church in particular, but the church in general in this nation to wake up. For me to wake up. For you to wake up. And to see God for who he is. And to see what he can do and what can be achieved in and through faith in him. If you're not a Christian, you need to come to him and you need to do it now. Because you don't know when he's coming back again. And if you are a Christian, you need to come to him and you need to ask him to help you serve him. Amen. Amen.